you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Well, hello. Uh, my name is Erin, as Zach said. My pronouns are she and her, if you did not know that. I'd like to begin with a land acknowledgement to honor the native people that existed here before us. This land that we dwell upon today, Grace Lutheran Church in downtown Phoenix, is the ancestral land of Tejano O'odham Nation. We acknowledge their historical roots in this place, the many generations who were stewards of this land before it was stolen from them. I'd also like to acknowledge the events that happened yesterday in Buffalo, New York. May 14th, Peyton Grindon, an 18-year-old who allegedly wrote a 180-page white supremacist manifesto on how people of color are replacing white people in America, traveled from hours away to a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York, and opened fire in a supermarket. While live streaming on Twitch, the 18-year-old shooter had the N-word scrawled on his rifle. He targeted Topps Friendly Market Store in a predominantly black area, killing 10 people and wounding three, 11 of those shot were black. I want to acknowledge what has happened in Buffalo because it's important. It's important to tell the truth about the lived experiences of black people in America. It is the only way we can create safe spaces for us to exist together among other white people. To my fellow black friends in the room, I know that every time something like this happens, we go out into the world a bit more on high alert. I know that every time something like this happens, we go to bed a bit more nauseated. I know every time something like this happens, we look at our black friends and family a bit longer and hope they don't encounter a white terrorist in the world. I know every time something like this happens, we take a deep breath and hope the white allies around us stay white allies. I know every time something like this happens, we just want to put on a black movie or get around black people or do whatever we can to put an image of black people winning in front of us because it feels like the news only shows us black people dying. I know every time something like this happens, it takes faith to keep trusting that the ways of Jesus can make a difference. To believe that the system of white supremacy isn't too big for us. To believe in white friends who are truly abolitionists. And to believe that the ways of Jesus are more powerful than the power to kill that exists in the world. I stand here as a black woman a black pastor standing among black and white people, some Native American, some Guatemalan, some Hispanic, Latina, Latino, some Asian and Pacific Islander, some Middle Eastern, trying to figure out what to say to this community of people that we might live as beloved community, trying to imagine a multi-ethnic community that truly cares for the health, safety, and well-being of each other. I'm trying to imagine a community that doesn't pretend like white supremacy doesn't exist, but imagines a new world in spite of it. That's hard to do. 
but I'm somewhat hopeful because Jesus rising up from the dead is proof that his ways are greater than empire, greater than empire's desire for power, greater than empire's desire to kill. I'm hopeful because Jesus was a subversive political leader and in this room are his followers, people willing to live subversive to empire, people willing to restore the dignity of our brothers and sisters, people willing to redistribute land and resources to Native Americans and black people because our government won't do it. There's something in me that wants to believe that that's possible. And that is why I'm standing here today. I stared into the face of my black husband a bit longer today, not knowing all that may happen in his life, but praying that God would protect him, that God would protect us. Let's take a moment of silence for the people and families impacted by the white supremacist and terrorist attack in Buffalo, New York. The unborn are a convenient group of people to advocate for. They never make demands of you. They are morally uncomplicated, unlike the incarcerated, addicted, or the chronically poor. They don't resent your condescension or complain that you are not politically correct. Unlike widows, they don't ask you to question patriarchy. Unlike orphans, they don't need money, education, or childcare. Unlike aliens, they don't bring all that racial, cultural, and religious baggage that you dislike. They allow you to feel good about yourself without any work at creating or maintaining relationships. And when they are born, you can forget about them because they cease to be unborn. It's almost as if by being born, they have died to you worthy of open fire in a grocery store, police brutality, and shots in the back. You can love the unborn and advocate for them without substantially challenging your own wealth, power, or privilege, without reimagining social structures, apologizing, or making reparations to anyone. The unborn are, in short, the perfect people to love if you want to claim you love Jesus, but actually dislike the people who breathe. Prisoners, immigrants, the sick, the poor, widows, orphans, friends unshowered and without homes, all the groups that are specifically mentioned in the Bible, they all get thrown under the bus for the unborn. That's a quote by Methodist pastor David Barnhart. A few years back, I watched a documentary called AKA Jane Roe. It tells the story of Norma McCorvey, the Jane Roe, whose unwanted pregnancy led to the 1973 case that legalized abortion nationwide, Roe versus Wade. The documentary unravels the mysteries closely guarded by Jane Roe throughout her life. 
Some of the mysteries those include are the fact that she never actually had an abortion. Her life was extremely hard. Her mother hit her. She was shamed for kissing and falling in love with another woman. She escaped a marriage to an abusive man and then quietly stood her ground as a queer woman until her dying day. Eventually, she was considered too divisive and unpredictable by many in the abortion movement. Jane Rose stunned the world in 1995 when she made a public religious and political conversion. She was baptized on television in a backyard swimming pool. She wore overalls and came out beaming. She declared herself a newly anti-abortionist and spent the last two decades of her life crusading against the ruling her own case had made possible. But the complications of her life story don't end there. They go on. She cap her captured portrait in the film reveals that even at the age of 69, with her heart failure leading to her early grave, she yet again said she was for abortion. Her story is complicated, messy, and seen by political leaders on both abortion and anti-abortion campaigns as the catalyst for their political agendas. What's most revealing about this story is that even in the conception for this national case, Jane Roe lived as a poster child for both abortion and anti-abortion. Her story reveals that a woman's choice is nuanced by lived experiences, money, power, and the lack thereof, manipulation and the complexities of systemic injustice and the complexities of life itself. Even in the conception of Roe v. Wade, it was never actually ever about Jane Roe. It was about politicians on both sides getting behind a sellable story that would grant them the power that they were after all along. What would Jesus do with a fight against a woman's right to choose? Within this season of Eastertide, we encounter the resurrected Jesus again and again as we are invited to live as resurrection people. Filled with the Spirit, joining Jesus and fulfilling what he set out to do, which is bring good news to the poor, the least, the lost, and the left out. When it comes to women's rights being changed in our land, large changes such as overturning Roe v. Wade has the greatest impact on the poor, the least, those marginalized and left out. So if Jesus can't bring good news to the here and now, then what are we here for? If we will not preach good news to women here and now, then what are we preaching? If we will not embody good news, deliverance, and liberation to women here and now, then what are we embodying to our neighbors? Because it may not be Jesus at all. Our passage tonight is John 13, 31 through 35, and it reads this. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where am I going? You cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love 
one another. At the beginning of the chapter in John 13, Jesus takes time to wash his disciples' feet. He washes their feet and says, you do this also for one another. Jesus then takes bread and wine and tells them to partake and to do so in remembrance of him. But let's back it up a little bit. It's interesting that Jesus washes everyone's feet. The one who will betray him, Judas. The one who will deny him, Peter. And the ones who faithfully try to follow him. He washes all of their feet. And on the same night, he has communion. He says, take of this, partake and eat of this bread, which represents my body, and do this in remembrance of me. Take this cup of wine, drink of it, and do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus is saying is that the ones who betray me, the ones who deny me, the ones who try to faithfully follow me, do this together. And remember what the world tries to dismember, the truth that you belong to one another and inside of all of you is part of me. There's a concept from Mike Marsh that talks about the difference between dismembering and remembering found in our passage tonight. Jesus creates space for the remembering of all involved by commanding that we love one another and care for one another. For we were all once unborn, but the command cannot be followed by those who are unborn. The command can only be followed by those who are present with us. This is the pinnacle and fulfillment of all of our remembering. The love of Jesus is speaking about, that he's speaking about, is not a feeling. It is steadfast loyalty and commitment to another and her or his well-being. Love is a verb an action, and it has the power to change our lives and the world. Love looks like tears for and outreach to Ukraine. A parent's sleepless night with a sick child, sitting at the bedside of a dying loved one, supporting, encouraging, and calling forth the best in another. Commitment to one who has fallen and lost her or his way. Caring for those in need, celebrating the joys and successes of one another sitting with and holding the grief of one another, working for justice, forgiving hurts and healing relationships, living in gratitude. You cannot love without remembering. Love is the way of remembering, for we all belong to one another. Even in this historic moment of the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade, I cannot ignore the participation that Christian nationalism has on this topic. The through line of anti-abortion historically comes from Christian nationalism, an obsession with converting people to believe the same and act out religion the same. There is a heightened obsession with sameness instead of the love and care for all people, no matter what that looks like or how it is expressed. An article by Catherine Stewart says this, Christian nationalism drew its inspiration from a set of concerns that long predated the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade and had little to do with abortion. The movement settled on abortion as its litmus test sometime after that decision for reasons that had more to do with politics than embryos. 
It then set about changing the religion of many people in the country in order to serve its new political ambitions. From the beginning, the abortion issue has never been just about abortion. It has also been about dividing and uniting to mobilize votes for the sake of amassing political power, end quote. What is lacking in our society is the acknowledgement that the movement of anti-abortion is historically rooted in the desire to remove the rights of women, to remove health care for women, and to deem women incapable and unable to choose the best way to care for their, their life, body, and offspring. On the other hand, the civil rights movement set the example on how to build a movement that encourages the freedom of human rights instead of the control of human rights. In an article called The Civil Rights Movement and Public Religion, Dr. Wilda C. Gaffney writes this. Certain public officials are trying to transform freedom of religion into freedom to impose religion. They seem to imagine that their religious beliefs or moral conscience is superior to those of others and trump matters of settled law such as Roe v. Wade and the professional judgment of the medical community by trying to deny women's access to health care for which they do not care or more specifically to which they object on the basis of their personal ideological and religious beliefs. She says, I believe our senators, representatives, presidential candidates, and other po politicians would do well to take a lesson on the use of religion in the public square from the civil rights movement. The movement emerged from the black church and was based on principles articulated and affirmed in Christianity and its scriptures, including the inherent dignity of black men and women, Sadly, in that order for some, as human beings having been created in the image of God and the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet when the movement, the civil rights movement, pressed for legal remedies to the social and statutory marginalization of persons of African descent, the movement appealed to the founding documents of the United States and our legislative, judicial, and executive branches of government. The tireless civil rights workers and their leaders did not seek to impose their vibrant, transformative, egalitarian Christianity on the public square. Rather, they were fueled by their faith to work through the legal and political systems by not specifying a normative Christian practice for those who would advocate for the full enfranchisement of black people. The civil rights movement was home to persons of a variety of faith commitments. The faithful witness of the black church was on display to the world without ever asserting a call to capitulation or conversion. Dr. Gaffney goes on to say this, freedom of religion is also freedom from religion. No one has the right to impose their religion on another person on or in her body, or to deny her medical treatment, whether she pays her own insurance premiums or not, or to use medical professionals and technology to intimidate women or men into making choices in accordance with someone else's religion. With that being said, does it matter that the woman at the center of Roe v. Wade, Jane Roe, changed her mind twice? I think what that suggests is that the best person to decide if a woman should have an abortion is the woman who has to make that decision, 
for even Jesus affirmed the moral agency of women. Those of us who are Christians should follow his example. That means like Jesus, we trust women to make their own decisions without shame, without judgment, for we are not the judge, but are simply called to love one another and to show up for one another the same way that Jesus loves and shows up for us. As the band comes up, I'd like for you to close your eyes for a moment if you feel comfortable. Take a deep breath and just reflect on the things that you've heard tonight. Begin to imagine the ways the world and people have betrayed you. The ways they've dismembered you and maybe made you feel like life was falling apart. As you look at the broken pieces on the floor around you, each piece represents a part of the broken systems that don't serve you the systems that weren't meant to harm you or that were meant to harm you, then Jesus, see him as he enters the room. He picks up those pieces in love and in his justice, he begins to reorder them and make something new. He organizes the pieces in a way that makes your life and the lives of every person around you flourish. His new world order is built on love, not control, not manipulation, not dominance. See Jesus standing there with kind eyes and a warm smile, telling you that he loves you and he, he has always loved you from the moment you were born. And he says to you, Love one another as I have loved you. I'll end our time together with this tweet by Carlos A. Rodriguez. Mixing God with white nationalism creates terrorism. The church, we must reject it. We must speak against it. We must surrender its swords and follow the brown Messiah, the one who cares and has always cared for the marginalized. Until we see you again, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.